Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Welcome to the Magic Book Club podcast and welcome to a brand new year of books. Now, I think that all book lovers and even casual readers know that right now books are our therapy, aren't they? They transport us and transform us. So they're really getting us through. And so lucky for us, we've got two wonderful authors with us for the next 40 minutes. A master of suspense, the brilliant Jane Harper, and the woman behind, well, I think anyway, one of the most loving cookbooks for me pretty much ever. So pour yourself a cuppa or get your walking shoes on and settle in for the Magic Book Club podcast. Now, first up, we are very excited to be joined by a brilliant author and the mind behind The Dry, Force of Nature, The Lost Man. We love The Lost Man. And now the survivors all the way from sunny Oz, it's Jane Harper. Hello. Hello. Now, um, how, I'm not, I don't want to dwell on this because it's irritating me slightly, but how is the sunshine over there in Australia? <laughs> Oh yeah, it's um yeah it's it's it is it is sort of peak peak summer weather for us here. Um, so yeah, thinking of you guys over there in the depths of winter. <laughs> My friend keeps sending me pictures from long lunches with lots of friends on beaches in Adelaide, where she is, and I'm just like, enough, stop now, please stop. <laughs> um, we've been looking at you guys over there with with quite a lot of envy, I guess. Um, you're living what amounts to a fairly normal life at the moment, I guess, aren't you? Yeah, um, we are now. I mean, I'm I'm in Melbourne, and we had a really um, kind of tough time um, with lockdown earlier this year. We locked down really hard for, um, I think, close to four months in the end, um, and managed to kind of get get our numbers really low. And and now, sort of, most of the states have. Um, you know, low numbers. So we are managing to get back to to normal as much as you can kind of call it that, um, which is, you know, which is really great. But I think, you know, it's still hard sort of seeing how other countries are coping. And, and just I think just the global impact has been really hard. I mean, it's been a really hard year for everybody. So and we all have been through it and know what it's like. So um, hopefully better times ahead. It's interesting times to release um, a book because obviously the normal sort of um, the normal way of things are that you would be out and about and doing all sorts of events with your book. And, um, and, and even though that bit has obviously been, you know, curtailed a little bit, uh, we're seeing that people are turning to reading so much more. You know, it's being a real comfort in these difficult times. What's it like releasing this massive novel of yours right now? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... So it is really different um, releasing a book at the moment. I think one of the best things normally is um, getting the opportunity to actually meet readers face to face. Um, I have to say, though, that um, doing a lot of the online things that have um, have have come up this year has given you know me opportunities I think to get in touch with readers who would never maybe make it to sure. person in person events. So um, that's been a really good thing that I hope um, you know I hope does continue. It's funny because I'm just, you know, the things that we found is that I, my neighbour is in a book club and I never knew she was in a book club and now we're swapping books on the doorstep, you know, leaving them on the, But you, you, we're all finding out so much more about each other and it's great that we're having so many more conversations, I think, about books and readings and novels and sharing all that. It's, it's, it's a really nice part of it, I guess. Now, this book queen of tents that you are um i don't want to give too much away but if you can you t what can you tell our listeners a bit about it 
Yeah, sure. So The Survivors is my fourth novel. Um, it's an Australian mystery, like all the others. Um, this time set in um, a kind of a small town along the rugged coastline in Tasmania, which is a, a really small island state um, in Australia. Um, so it's um, full of you know, small town intrigue and secrets to be uncovered. Um, it follows the, um, the main character, a guy called Kieran Elliott, who's a young father. He returns to his hometown where his parents have been struggling and he's barely had the chance to brush the sand off his boots when a body is discovered on the beach. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> <laughs> the thing is as well, is what I love about, and it's, it's, common, it's common in many of your books, is that there's jeopardy everywhere. Um, uh, whether that's the, the, the sea and the tides, um, the, the claustrophobia of that small town, you know, the, the, ge- the geography of it being an island. Do you know what I mean? It just immediately feels tense. You must have really, in- it, it feels like you really in- enjoyed writing this. Yeah, I did. I really loved writing this one. Um, uh, I got to, um, I get to go and do a lot of um your research for the books, which is great, gives me opportunity to go and see things and ask questions and and be a bit nosy. Um, So I went down to Tasmania um, to research this, luckily just before, you know, everybody started getting (laughs) locked down and things. That was just pure luck. I I, I got that research trip in, but I I got to go and visit a lot of these small coastal towns. And um, I went scuba diving in these sort of freezing (laughs) Tasmanian waters and um, learned a lot about um, just the kind of, you know, the the landscape. And I guess the way that, I like to bring out, I guess, in all the books, the way that sort of shapes people and, and particularly their lives and their relationships and their, you know, opportunities for work and other things. I think one of the things that I really loved about this as well is that even Audrey, who is a, who is a small baby, even having her around adds another layer of jeopardy, whether she's going to, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, cry at the wrong moment or there's that extra layer of, of worry and concern because she's such a tiny little thing. And I thought it was it was really clever um, uh, how that made me, I think maybe because I'm a mother, it just made, it made me even more aware of what was at stake the whole time. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And you know what? It's it's, it's funny because actually I, um, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you draw on things in your own life and sometimes you don't. But for this one particularly, I had my own, um, I had a, my second child um, uh-huh. uh, in uh, late 2019. And so um, it was my little boy called Ted and he was um, three months old when I went on the research trip. So he was, you know, I was sort of walking uh-huh. along these beaches with him strapped to my chest and, you know, <laughs> kind of, and I was very, I think I was very in that sort of, um, you know, parenting mode when I was when I was working on the book and um, a lot of you know he, he um, very heavily inspired the character of Audrey in many ways. <laughs> yeah you do because when they're that little as well your mind plays terrible games with you you go to you know to the, the what ifs are really truly disturbing so you know that's that's really interesting and I know that you know how did so how did these ideas come to you because this is um, this is an intricate plot. There are lots of unexpected twists and turns. Are they little sparks or do they come to you fully formed? Um, they definitely don't come fully formed. I think um, that's one thing that I, I always sort of try and tell people who are, you know, um, aspiring writers, especially if they're looking, you know, to write something with kind of a, a mystery or crime or suspense element. Um, I think, you know, one of the mistakes I made for a long time myself when I was wanting to write a book but but didn't and couldn't really get started was was expecting these ideas to come fully formed and this lightning strike and it all kind of is this sort of rolls out in front of you and then it's just a question of writing it um 
And I, I always sort of tell people like, it's, it's so not like that for me anyway. Um, I, I sort of have like a bit of a spark of a single idea. And then I'm trying to think, it, has that got legs to take it through to a whole novel? And, mm -hmm. and then who, you know, who do I need to tell the story? And what are those characters like? And then who are the red herrings going to be? And who <laughs> is gonna kind of distract you? And it's, a lot of it, it's, it's, it's very much kind of building up. And I'll, I'll sort of consciously think about it. I'll think, you know, I'm, I'm gonna need, a number of red herrings, what could they be? What could they look like? And so it's not kind of a, a flash of inspiration at all. It's a lot of, you know, consciously thinking what is gonna make a book and how how is it gonna be structured and, and what do I need to fill those gaps? So it's a, it's a good experience for the reader. I'm interested as well because uh, you you have a you know, we all know that you've had you had a very long and successful career as a, as a, as a journalist in the UK. Do you feel more romantic and inclined to write about Australia when you're away or is it easier when you're as you are now back home? I think you know it's it's easier for me to write about Australia um, being in Australia. Um, I think you know going out and actually sort of getting you know my feet on the ground and speaking to people and and kind of seeing the land and feeling what the weather's like and things really help. Yeah. Um, not just with the inspiration but also with the the execution of writing the book. Um, I think, though, you know, if I were to say have a great idea for you know, a, a book set somewhere else or if I were to move, you know, and, and live somewhere else, um, I, I hope that I could kind of use those te techniques to write about a different landscape as well. You know, a lot of it yeah. is um, kind of, um, I guess, every time you write a book, you learn you know, what it is that works for you and how you kind of use the settings to work for the plot. So I, I hope that would be something that I could translate if I had, you know, the inclination, the idea to set it somewhere else as well. Well, Jane, Hull is waiting for a love letter to Hull. So, <laughs> That's you know, right. There aren't many people that would have done that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so um, uh, talking of, of working, we always like to try and find out a little bit about our authors and, and how you write. So what's your, what's your, tell us, you know, describe your situation when you're writing and you sat down, you stand, where are you? What do you write with? Yeah, so um, firstly, when I'm, um, so actually, this is a good time to talk about this, because I'm, I'm actually just sort of starting to think about the next book, you know, so I'm right at the start of the process. Cool. And what I'll do um, really for a while is I won't, um, I have a separate office, um, a, a sort of 10 minutes walk from my home above a cafe. And I, I actually, I won't go there for a while, though, I'll just um, spend quite a lot of time thinking about um, ideas and, and just letting them kind of you know, kind of run through and, and see what sort of settles and see what doesn't. Um, and then when I'm getting to the next stage, I would go into the office and I would do like really intensive planning and I would start um, and I, I, I sit, I'd sort of work alone um, at a desk, like with like mm -hmm. minimal distractions. And um, I spent a long time planning. I probably spend um, longer planning than I do writing the, the, a full first draft. Um, because for me, I know some authors um, don't, don't like to plan, like they think it, maybe strips out the creativity for them. But for me, I find actually quite like exactly the opposite because mm -hmm. I find in planning, um, if, I, if I'm just sort of testing things out um, in sort of note form, I can test out you know, 20 different ideas without having to commit to any of them. Whereas, you know, if I was writing it out in full, you know, that sort of 50,000 words you might have to delete and that's a really hard thing to do. So <laughs> I like to test it out with, you know, 20 words here and there and just see see what works and then I can find hopefully the best route through. That's that's such a, that's the journalist in you, isn't it? I've got to be efficient <laughs> right. about the way okay, I've, I've got a lot yeah. to do here. <laughs> that's do it. I do like to be very efficient. <laughs> <laughs> do you let anybody read your 50,000 words that you might or might not delete? 
No, I don't. Um, I, I also don't really, yeah, have a kind of early readers, um, mainly because I sort of feel like, um, you know, people can only read a book one, once for, for the first time once. And so I try and keep as many people fresh as possible till as late as possible so I can get the best possible feedback. So um, the only person who really knows what I'm writing about is my um, my poor husband who has to listen to me kind of like verbalize these sort of half baked ideas, which sometimes I find if I just sort of say them out loud, the you know, it, the answer comes to me or it becomes clear whether it's a good idea or not. And so he sort of sits on the couch while I'm kind of saying, well, and then if this happened and this happened, and he sort of nods supportively and, you know, and he, and he, and it, with, with no context at all. Um, and and then, but I, I, I'll, I'll work on the whole thing um, myself. I'll get a really decent like draft down and I'll, I'll get it to the point where I feel like I can't do any more without professional input and then I'll show it to the editors yeah. um, and then get like a full sort of structural edit. So yeah, I keep it to myself for as long as possible, really. Um, uh, we, we can't go without having a chat about The Dry and the film version of your novel. It came out on New Year's Day this year. I mean, you had me at Eric. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, how, I do, was yeah. how was that? How was that that experience for you? We've yet to see it here, but I can't wait because I mean, again, landscape is everything and just lends itself so well to that cinematography side of a film. Yeah. Oh, look, you know what? The, the film is amazing. It's it's really um, it is really, really something special. And the film stars the beautiful Eric Banner, who is such a beloved Australian actor. Um, I've had really great feedback from readers who have obviously their own idea of you know, what Aaron Fork um, is supposed to be and have really responded so um, amazingly to him. Um, the, you know, I, I really love the film. I think it really captures like the tone and the feel of the book just just so beautifully. Um, I'm in it as well. I got to be an extra, so um, <laughs> that was really fun. So I got to be in the funeral playing a grieving townsperson. Um, so make sure you keep an eye out on the second row of the church for some of the best acting you, you'll see will this do. side of Hollywood. Will do, <laughs> so. will do. Was that written into the contract? Yeah, you can have the book, but I need a part. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as soon as I heard Eric Banner was going to be in it, I was, you know, <laughs> my hand went straight up. <laughs> Good work, girly. Good work. I like your style. Um, and with, with that in mind, uh, the, the survivors, again, so much drama. I mean, you know, you're going to have to to employ actors who like getting wet. Um, but it is, it, it, you know, any, are there any plans? Anything that you can tell us? Um, yeah, so The Survivors has actually been optioned for a major TV series, um, <gasps> which is very exciting. So that will be um, a, a shot in Australia. Um, it's still really early days. So, um, you know, watch this space, more news to, to hopefully come out in due course about that. But um, I think yeah that's that's a really exciting um, you know, opportunity for, for the book, obviously. Um, and I'm quite having seen how to dry has has turned out. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, um, what what could be done with this. I feel the book has a very sort of episodic kind of twisty yes. nature to it, which would, would work really well in a kind of, you know, hopefully binge-worthy TV series. Oh, my gosh. I'm excited about it already. It hasn't even been made. I'm excited about it. And if we, if we, can, if we spot any sort of random scuba divers, I'll be like, ah, that's Jane. That's Jane. <laughs> 
that's right. I think I think the key is to always write in some sort of like community meeting or funeral <laughs> or something, something that requires a, a crowd where I can I can linger, you know, obviously, and but behind the main character. <laughs> um, Jane, I really enjoyed the book. It was um, it was it's like you know it's 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 brilliant. I love it. It had me gripped the whole way through, and it's been a delight to speak to you. Thank you for talking to us at the end of your busy day. Um, oh, thank you so yeah. much. You take care. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's, it's great to talk to you. Jane Harper, what a fantastic lady. That was super fun. And I'm trying to not be too jealous of their Australian winter sun right now. So here we are then in lockdown number three. Things are a little on the rubbish side for a lot of people, but there is always <laughs> hope. And there is especially always hope in food, one of my favourite subjects. And we are very lucky now to be joined by the woman behind the ice, just so gorgeous, the fabulous midnight chicken and other recipes worth living for. It's Ella Risbridger, how are you? Hi, I I mean, first, thank you very much for being so kind. Um, I think I'm great on the new scale of great, which is to say <laughs> I'm wearing, you know, clean socks. I am awake. I've eaten a crumpet. Like, by the new scale, I think I'm fantastic. I think in the old world, it would have been like, feel a bit glum. But right now, I'm like, crushing it. <laughs> It's so funny, isn't it? Because like as a young person growing up, I would always rage against anybody that told me to lower my expectations. But now it's like, bring it on. (laughs) I mean, I do feel in some ways it's the key to having a nice life. Yeah. In any in any aspect, even without the lockdown is to kind of it's a bit trite, but this thing of want what you have and then you'll always have what you want. It's like, you know what? We've got crumpets. What I really want is a crumpet and that will make my day. Um, and I, Yeah, and if there's ever been a moment where we've been able to have the time to really, you know, um, enjoy the butter running through the crumpet and the no, that newly toasted nutty smell of it and, you know, to have that time to really enjoy those, it's now. It really is now. I think so. I mean, I'm very conscious that there's lots of people for whom this is not a time where they've got any time. Yeah. You know, people with kids at home and people with kind of caring responsibilities, and obviously kind of having been a carer, I'm very conscious of all the people for whom this is not a time to be able to sit around. However, there are is there is a sort of sizable chunk of people who probably are getting to be at home more and getting to enjoy things. And, you know, what else is there? Well, there's Midnight Chicken to tuck into, which I devoured and absolutely loved. I really did. Uh, It actually graced our kitchens back in 2019, didn't it? But um, back with a redesign, with with a a new essay opening from yourself um, and these amazing illustrations as well from, is it Elisa? Elisa Cunningham? Elisa Cunningham. Elisa Cunningham, yeah. She's just the most wonderful thing. Honestly, when we were talking about how to do this book and we talked a bit about whether we would have photos or whether we would have illustrations... And then we found Elisa and it was like, oh, she draws like I would like to draw. She makes these pictures that are how the pictures I draw look in my mind before they kind of get transcribed onto paper and become like scribbly little messes. (laughs) They really are lovely. And um, uh, I kind of I was trying to sort of find the best way in my head to describe the book because I'm. You know, I'm a cookbook fanatic and I've got way too many, but, um, you know, and I've always loved Nigel Slater's size books and they're really, you know, nice in the hand. And it almost feels and this. I was trying to find the best way to describe it. And your book just feels to me like I've got a little friend and I can walk around with a cup of tea and flick through it and read it. 
it's just lovely. It's such my type of, I love it. I absolutely loved it. Did you, and I kind of, this is a sort of standard podcast author question, but I, you know, is your expectations, it, it's exceeded, I'm sure, because so many people said so many lovely things about it. It feels to me that you didn't have very many expectations of it at all, if that makes no, sense. not at all. I, I mean, I think it's probably quite cliche for an author to say that they wrote it for themselves, but I really did write it for myself at 21 when I was having a really awful time. And I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of quite wary always about talking about things like suicide and self-harm because the Samaritans are so clear that when you talk about it, it isn't great and you have to be so careful. But I was in a really, really dark place. And what I needed was a kind of consistent friend who I didn't feel bad about taking up their time or I didn't bad about kind of being so needy I mean I wrote this book for a very needy version of myself who needs who needed a hand to hold and it's been incredibly healing Ugh, what a word but to feel that you can help other people and to feel that out of that horrible pit is this sense that I can make connections with other people and I have made such amazing connections with people everywhere. I think that's the kind of acclaim has obviously been lovely, but what's been amazing to me is people who write to me and people who message me on Instagram and Twitter and through my website. Um, I hesitate if anyone's listening, please don't look at my website. It's a disaster. I don't know how it works. Um, I'm not very technical. Um, but some people do manage to sort of get through the absolute sea and message me there. And it's like, I wrote this thing and I wrote it about my life and I wrote it about a very dark time in my life in in a very different dark time in my life. And it's truly amazing. Well, you you wouldn't ever have believed it. Yeah. Talking about some of the people that, that have got through and have commented, uh, Queen of the Kitchen, Nigella. Nigella called it a manual for living in a declaration of hope in uh, typically Nigella language, which is always appreciated. Um, does the approval of the, of the establishment, is it important to you or is that just a really nice touch? I mean, I think it's important to me in the sense that I learned, I, I didn't learn to cook from Nigella, but I learned to think about food from Nigella. I learned to cook really from the internet and Googling and buying stuff in the reduced style, but I learned to write about food through Nigella. I used to read her cookbooks when I was little and not in a cooking kind of, I didn't ever read them for I'm going to cook this because I have three sisters and my parents' attitude towards cooking was kind of like, okay, <laughs> who's going to wash up? How many of you are going to be in the kitchen at any one time? Which isn't to say my parents weren't incredibly supportive, they've always been brilliant, but cooking really wasn't a part of my childhood in that way. And so I used to read Nigella in the same way I read everything else. I kind of came to cookbooks in the same way I approached basically all reading, which is to say, is it on my parents' shelves? There is a bit in the, in the essay at the beginning which describes you describe yourself as a buy first, Google later, cover it in Parmesan cook, which immediately hooked me. I was like, we're going to get on. We're going to get on. <laughs> well, I think it's the only way to really learn to love cooking. I worry a lot about people learning to cook from cookbooks that have beautiful, glossy images and lots of steps. For sure. And not a lot of hand-holding because it's so easy for it to go wrong and it's so easy for it not to live up to the glossy photograph. And also you've put so much energy and time and money into cooking 
that's why we've got illustrations and that's why um I wrote this book in this way this kind of comforting it's okay and it, and it I, is and it, and I think the thing is as well is your language all the way through you know it's like oh well it's about this much and it doesn't really matter and you can need it for this long and um I don't know how long it is but it'll be it'll be as long as it takes to make a cup of tea it's so welcoming um, to people who are perhaps a little afraid of, you know, going into the kitchen and to, what did I make? I made your bagels. I never even would, I never ever in a million years would have attempted bagels. Um, and I'll tell you what it was that, that, that led me down your bagel alleyway uh, was when you said, oh, look, you could just, you could open it immediately and eat it standing up at the oven um, uh, with, uh, because that's the whole joy of being a cook and a grown up. And I was like, well, that's it. That's it. I'm just going to stand there and eat them <laughs> myself as they come out of the oven. It is. It is very, very welcoming. And by the way, that recipe is sterling. It actually worked. I actually made bagels. So thank you. I've gone up in the kids' estimation. You made actual bagels. This is the other thing is there's such an amazing joy in being able to make a thing you never thought you could make. Um, I feel a very big responsibility, especially with recipes like bagels, because what you don't want is someone to make a thing and be like, oh, okay, well, it didn't work and I knew it wouldn't work, so I probably won't try that again. It's one of the reasons that cookbook takes cookbooks take so long to make is because you have to test everything so extensively sometimes I read a cookbook and I think this won't work I can feel already that this recipe needed two more goes through in a test kitchen um yeah I find it often with things from big commercial kitchens I think you didn't you didn't think about people in their own kitchens being like well I haven't got a mixing bowl but I have got this big baking tray (laughs) and I think so often with cookbook writers, and I find myself doing it as well now, particularly now I've kind of got a better stocked kitchen and I'm not as sort of student poor as I was when I started writing, um, is assuming that people will have a stand mixer or that they will definitely have two kinds of flour. Yeah. And I, I feel very strongly that you have to like, okay, what is the, what do you actually need for this recipe? Do you need a mixing bowl? Could you do it in the big baking tray? Could you save washing up somehow? Could you save the electricity? And it's not like a kind of penny-pinching thing so much as you want to meet people where they are. You want people to feel like, oh, this is for my kitchen, not for a fancy kitchen. This is for me. It's so appreciated. Even, yeah, it's so appreciated. Even the, you know, even the even the little touches like take your biggest pan, not take a large pan, because I don't know, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean? You know, if you only have What's two What's a large pans, pan? What's a large pan? So take your biggest pan means is completely clear to me. It means exactly what it needs it to mean. Um, so I think, the, the, you know, we, we are we are in lockdown and you know the, the big cliche the first lockdown was everybody was trying to cook uh, but uh, at the moment I think in these dark winter months we're all trying to do a little bit more looking after ourselves you know at the moment aren't we and there's a bit of a pressure about that people are talking about the pandemic pounds and the lockdown stone how do you think we should put that aside and focus on joyful food you know is it something that we should be thinking about at the moment or can we just you know do we just bank it for a minute Honestly, at the moment, if you are getting out of bed and you are eating, you're doing fine. It's all—it's a bad time. Everyone in the whole world is having a bad time. That's quite, it's quite nice, actually, in a way, particularly coming from this background of kind of mental illness and mental health stuff, to be like, oh, it's not you. This is the norm now. We're all having a bad time. We're all just trying to do our best to get through the day. And honestly, 
eat a vegetable, eat some frozen peas, eat a clementine, you're probably fine. This isn't going to be forever. Um, and do what you need to do to get through it. Now is not, it's not a standard January where you think, right, I'm going to go for a run, I'm going to only eat whole grains, I'm going to eat all this. This is a, what is the bare minimum fruit and veg I can use to get through today without actively crying? And you know what? Even if you need to actively cry while you're eating a clementine and a bag of frozen peas, you know what? You're still here. You're still standing. Another one down, a little bit closer to getting out of this. And I, I think this is true for the pandemic, but it's also true for any dark time you find yourself in in your life, mm. is this sense of what do I need to get to the end of today feeling not completely hellish and some days that's I really need to cook something elaborate even if that means staying up you know in some people's cases after the kids have gone to bed or you know thinking back to myself a few years ago like my late partner was in hospital and I think I really need to cook something elaborate so I'd get home from the hospital at sort of nine or ten and then really get stuck into cooking something elaborate and that was more important to me than sleeping at that time because it was something for me. And I think in this time, globally, we're all making those kind of trade-offs. And the trick, I think, is giving yourself even 30 seconds to think, what one thing do I really need today? And maybe that's to go for a run. And maybe that's to eat a lot of vegetables. But maybe it's to eat four Fox's mm. ginger creams and watch half an episode <laughs> of Project Runway. <laughs> busted project runway now we get to the real ella <laughs> i love project runway i just love project runway i used to think i didn't like telly i when i wrote midnight chicken i was very oh you know i don't have a television i don't i look at it now and i think that's probably part of the reason you were so sad was i was trying so hard to be the right kind of person yeah and one of the things i have truly learned through big personal tragedy and then global tragedy I guess as well is that you have to relax sometimes you have to lean into just watching Project Runway for a bit you can't make stuff happen every evening you can't you can't always be the shiniest version of yourself and it's it's interesting because I for a little while was a beauty columnist and I wrote a lot about kind of the products that make you like oh it's not makeup it's just to make you the best version of yourself yeah and I sometimes wonder whether, do you know what? You don't need to be the best version of yourself today. All you need to do is hang on and get through it and you get another chance tomorrow. Ella, have you kind of through the, through the, you know, the, the difficult times that you've had um, and you're turning to food, have you worked out what it is about food and cooking that, that is, you know, that, that works for you? Is it, is it flavours? Is it the process? Is it the structure of a recipe? What, what, it, what is it about making food for you that you think rescues, rescues you in those dark times? All right, so I've kind of, over the years, developed this kind of quite complicated theory. So I'm going to try and be as simple as possible here. Excellent. I think it's that it's creativity with strong boundaries. It's creativity with a set of rules around it. So you get mm -hmm. to play, but you also get to feel safe because if you put flour and butter together and then you whisk in milk, it will get thick. That's a kind of Nora Ephron paraphrase, I think. But yeah. it will. And that will always happen. And, you know, if you mince the garlic, garlic very finely and then fry it in butter, you'll get garlic butter. It's like a sort of mathematical, steady boundaries, rules process. But also you get to play. 
you'd be like, what happens if I, you know, chop coriander into this garlic butter rather than parsley or whatever? You get to be a little bit creative in a way that doesn't feel as daunting as looking at a blank page. And they've done lots of studies about creativity and trauma. And they did it particularly, the ones I know are particularly with writing. Yeah. And it really, really helps. It really helps you process trauma. I can't remember the exact study, but something like they got people to write for 30 minutes about absolutely anything at all and then did kind of before and after tests on Mm. trauma levels and stress levels and hormones. And they found that just writing for 30 minutes about anything you wanted had a huge measurable effect on stress. And for me, I kind of see cooking as a way to tap into that same creativity Mm. without the daunting fear of, well, blank page, what are you going to fill it with? And so there's that. And there's also this incredibly practical thing of we all have to eat. We all have to cook something every day, even if it's just a sandwich or heating up a can of baked beans, right? Mm-hmm. So the act of doing something that kind of contributes to your well-being is very soothing in itself, especially with things like depression, mm. where you're like, I know I would feel better if I could get out of bed and go for a run and drink a green juice. I know I would. But also the depression is what makes that so hard to do. And because cooking is something, because eating is something we all have to do, it feels like a good place to start. Mm. And so you're like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to put this, cook this pasta and I mix it with some pesto. And then you're like, okay, well, achievement for the day. I did (laughs) eat dinner. And then the next day you're like, you know, I did it yesterday. So I could probably try and do it again today. Maybe I will chop a tomato into it. And you're kind of making these small incremental changes that are both kind of feeding you practically and physically in that, you know, you're getting the fuel you need to keep going. So you're less tired and less lethargic, but also mentally in that you're achieving small concrete goals that you can say, I did nothing else, but I did eat. And I guess we're kind of back to this lower your expectations thing, but when you're very sad, it's really good to feel that you can tick that off. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, one of the things I loved about the book so much is, you know, the introduction, the new essay is is, is fantastic, Ella. It's absolutely gorgeous. But also, you know, starting off with proper oat cakes and, you know, really comforting, carby things that are easy with such a nice sort of roll into the, the more complicated, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the different flavors that you find throughout the book and it was it's it's lovely it's absolutely lovely um and I can't you know I've it's been a great help to me and I'm I'm you know going through it recipe by recipe with lots of tea enjoying it completely so um thank you so much for it Ella is there a, I mean I know this is a really silly thing to ask you but is there I mean is there a dish that's getting you through this pandemic and is it in the book what's getting us through this pandemic well I think you know the lockdown cookies or they've called Paris cookies in the book but yes I sort of rename them lockdown cookies because so many people have made them over lockdown. I think because they're quite easy. They're like a little sugar hit. They're quite a good win. They don't really want any complicated ingredients. There's lots of fiddling around you can do to kind of suit what you have in the cupboard. And so not cooking that recipe, but reading about other people making that recipe has really helped in terms of like feeling a human connection. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, oh, I'm in my house and you, a total stranger in your house, you know, there's a woman in Abu Dhabi who's got a little boy and she makes them with a little boy. You know, there's a school, I think, in rugby, somewhere like that, who have been 
making them in a cooking class in a sort of cooking class on zoom uh there's loads of families loads of little kids lots of and lots of people kind of just trying to get an easy an easy win an easy treat yeah. i think we need more easy wins in this time but feeling like we're all doing this recipe together i found incredibly helpful like oh there's still a world out there there's still strangers you don't know and people you don't know yet who you're going to meet and you're going to have connections with and you're going to talk to one of the things i've really missed is talking like tiny interactions with strangers yes. i don't know if you feel the same yeah yeah but, completely accidental stuff but like a nice chat with a person in a shop or you sit next to someone on a bus and you say oh your coat's nice where's it from <laughs> You know, those are the interactions I have really, really missed because those yeah. are the ones that have completely gone. There was a moment in, I think, the first at the end of the first lockdown, where I just found myself shouting across the road at another woman who was also <laughs> clearly out for like a very reluctant couch to 5K run. Like, I love your leggings so much. <laughs> I was just like, I just, we are, we're right on the other side of the road. It's quite a busy road. <laughs> I just need to tell you, I love your leggings. Oh dear, that's hilarious. I, t I totally agree. I really do. Well, look, if I if I get shouted at by somebody across the other side of the road about my <laughs> leggings, I'll know it's you and I'll shout back. Um, Ella, it's been a joy to speak to you. I knew I'd enjoy this chat and I think I might go make some creamy leeks and cover them in Parmesan later. Oh, please well. do. Um, it's a gorgeous book and uh, you uh, take care, look after yourself and, and we will be out the other side of this lockdown very soon. Oh, I think so. We've just got to get through it. That's what I mean. If you just need a clementine and some spaghetti hoops, hang on, we're <laughs> going to get there. Uh, what a great note to end on. Ella, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Just so many wonderful words to live by there. And that, sadly, is all we've got time for on the Magic Book Club podcast. If you want to see the rest of our picks and join the club, head to magic.co.uk and we'll see you next time. Right, I'm off to buy. No, scrap that. Make some crumpets. Make some crumpets.